Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher Kevin Connor. This series of messages is based on Kevin's best-selling book, Restoration Theology, available in paperback, hardback, and ebook formats from Amazon in your region, and also as a PDF download from the shop at kevinconnor.org. Father, here we are again in your presence tonight. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we uh, do want to acknowledge your sovereignty over the nations, your sovereignty over this nation of Australia. This nation belongs to you. It's the southern land of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we believe, Lord, that you just overrule in all the affairs of men. Father, now we come to uh, uh, share in your word tonight, and we want to look at the uh, nation of Israel. Pray that you'll help us in our deliberations, just uh, sharpen our, us uh, spiritually, mentally. Uh, help us uh, just, uh, yeah, we just pray that the uh, spirit of revelation and illumination will be upon our hearts, Father, uh, that we'll be able to think fast and just uh, grasp uh, the big picture of what you're doing in this nation and the nation of Israel. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone said amen. amen. Now, if uh, you have your textbook tonight, a little plug by a close friend of mine, KJC. Uh, they say KJC and KJV. They say there's not much difference. <laughs> what I want to do tonight, and I do want you to sort of think fast with me because we have 40 minutes in this session and I purposely finish on time because those who are looking out for the children really appreciate it and are ready to kiss me at the end of it for finishing on time. So they don't, they don't have to babysit for the next quarter of an hour. Alright, the chapters I really need to cover tonight, just the big picture I'm going to do is chapters 10, 11 and 12 and 13 if you do have the text. Now, what I want to cover tonight, and as you'll see on your notes here, Restoration Theology, and I just want to spend just one night on the restoration of Israel, and uh, what we're going to look at tonight, it may not be for many of us here, but uh, for myself, having uh, been around the traps for some 50 years now, I find that uh, what I want to share tonight is a very controversial subject, and uh, what I've found over my time, we're traveling in different churches and different conferences, uh, it's a very sens a sensitive issue for a lot of people. And um, what I found that on one hand you've got those who uh, magnify the nation of Israel or the Jewish nation, the so-called Jewish problem above the church and above all nations and uh, tell me that the Jewish nation is still the elect nation, they're still the chosen nation and when the church has uh, been taken out as a failure, God is going to turn back to the Jews and they're going to become the chief nation. So you've got that on one hand, and then on the other hand you've got those, uh, and some of my friends, who deny that there's anything left for the Jewish nation, or the nation of Israel, and that God is totally finished with them, and that's it. Uh, how many know that to every thesis there's antithesis, 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 but the balance is always down the middle, generally? Synthesis, and I'm synthetic, uh, no, not synthetic, but... <laughs> Uh, what I want to present to you tonight is really uh, what I think is a balance between two extremes. Those who may deify the Jew and those who damn the Jew. So I want to be way down the middle, which I believe is what the Bible teaches. All right, so I want you to turn to our, uh, and what I've done on my own no notes here. 
I've mapped out about five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. And if I do that pretty good, I'll cover 40 minutes. So you have to think fast with me. Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. And we just want to, and, and please remember, I'm just giving you the big picture tonight. The fuller details are in those chapters from the text, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. Now, Romans chapter 9, the first thing we start off with here is Paul's burden for the nation of Israel. Now, Paul was uh, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as we, as we know, he's a Jew. Uh, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, as I said, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You couldn't get anybody worse. It's like, a, uh, like the epistle of Jude says, an ungodly sinner. A sinner's bad enough, but when you get an ungodly sinner, how many know he's really bad? All right, well, if you get a Pharisee of the Pharisees, they're really, really bad. So uh, that was what Paul was. And then uh, we find he was miraculously converted to Christ on the Damascus Road. Uh, but in spite of that, he still has a great burden for his own nation, the nation of Israel, though he's sent to be the apostle to the Gentile nation. So go see the big picture here now. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 9 reading from New King James here, and if we can sort of pick up the heart of Paul, because the chapters particularly, in fact, the major chapters in the New Testament, in fact, yeah, more than anywhere else, the major chapters in the New Testament uh, that deal with the so-called Jewish problem, the so-called Israel problem, what about Israel, what about the Jews, uh, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters are basically the major chapters in the New Testament that deal with what's being referred to, or well, what about the Jewish problem. All right, we'll hope to answer that in due time. Now listen to what Paul says in verses 1 through to uh, 3 particularly. I should have had that, that there. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Uh, Old King James says, uh, different words here, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. So great heaviness, heaviness of spirit, great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And listen to what he says in verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, that is cut off from Christ, uh, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So Paul is no anti-Semitic. He's uh, not against the nation of Israel, though a lot of the Judaizing teachers felt he were. Uh, he was and chased him everywhere uh, because he was sent to the Gentiles. But he always went to the Jew first, to the synagogue, and then when the Jew in the synagogue rejected the gospel, then he went to the Gentiles. So you have to hear the heart of Paul here. He says, I have continual heaviness, great heaviness, great sorrow and continual grief in my heart and uh, so, so, so heavy is this grief that Paul actually says this is his prayer, I wish myself a curse, literally cut off from Christ and what he's really saying here, uh, damn, damn me and save them that he was willing to have his name, like Moses, blotted out of the book of life in order that his own nation would be saved. So Paul's no anti-Semitic, even though he's been sent to the Gentiles. So that's his burden for the nation. And may I say this because I want to present a very uh, down-the-middle balance, hope, hopefully, on, on this whole area tonight. God lays different uh, nations on different people's hearts. 
So we think of all the nations that are represented here by the flags, and, you know, God loves Africa or India and so forth. God, God loves nations, doesn't he? How many can say that? He loves nations. So he may put different nations on different people's hearts. Now, Paul says, well, I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee, but I still have great heaviness in my heart for my own nation, the nation of Israel. But I've been sent to the Gentile nations. All right, let's go to number B now, and we're going to put the answers very briefly on the overhead here. We, in, in Romans chapter 9, we're going to major on these chapters pretty much tonight. Paul lists out eight, and I want, want to give you an extra one tonight, eight privileges that were given to the nation of Israel, to natural Israel. Let me just read them first, and then I want to make a brief comment just before we do number one. So continue on in uh, verse 4. So he says... Um, I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So, nation of Israel, the Israelites, to whom pertaineth, then he lists out these things. All right, number one, uh, right on the overhead here, number one, to whom pertaineth the adoption. Now, we can only comment on these brief, brief things because when God chose the nation of Israel, he took them as a nation from the midst of a nation, nation of Egypt, uh, nation of Egypt, he took them as a nation from the nations and he gave them certain privileges and we'll see why in a little while. So number one, the adoption. They were actually adopted as God's son from the nations. Put down Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23. Not going to be able to turn to too many scriptures because, as I said, I want to give you the big picture. So, the adoption to whom pertaineth the adoption. Number two, second thing that God gave this nation, the only nation on the face of the earth to have it was the glory of God, or what he says, and the glory. So, when we're talking about the glory, we're talking about, thank you, we'll have number one and two now, the adoption. Number two, the Shekinah glory. This is the only nation on the face of the earth that had the visible manifestation of the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. Jews refer to as the Shekinah, the visible manifestation of the presence of God in the glory cloud. No other nation had it. Number three, the third thing that Paul says, who are Israelites, to whom pertain of the adoption of the glory, and number three, the covenants. Why don't you write these things down, and you can just abbreviate them accordingly. Five covenants were given to the nation of Israel. First of all, the Abrahamic covenant, and if you're like me, you can do AC not ACDC, uh, but the Abrahamic covenant. Number two, the Mosaic covenant given by Moses. Then number three, the Palestinian covenant, PC you can put there, Palestinian covenant that concerns the land and the Davidic covenant concerning kings. And then the ultimate, the greatest of all covenants was the new covenant. You have to keep this in mind. So whom pertaineth the covenants? The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Palestinian, the Davidic and the new covenants. They were a covenant people. Number four, the fourth thing that was given to the nation here, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth, number four, the giving of the law. And under that you can put down, and we, as I said, we haven't got time to milk this or add, uh, you know, amplify it here, the, the law in its three major areas, the moral law consisting of the Ten Commandments, the civil law that were amplifying the moral law the, uh, written in the book, and then finally the ceremonial law. So I'll say those three again, the giving of the law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. So the giving of the law. Number five, the fifth thing that was, uh, this nation was blessed with, number five was the service of God. 
And by the service of God, we think uh, religiously, maybe say, well, we're going to go for the morning service or whatever it is. By the service of God, we mean the service that was in the tabernacle of Moses, the order of approach to God, and then the Davidic order of worship, the tabernacle of David. And so the singers and the players and instrument, musical instruments, and that type of Davidic worship that uh, we are blessed with here. Thank you for that little amen that I heard squeaking out there. And then the Temple of Solomon, which was the embodiment. So the order of service, the service of God, the approach to God. All right, so number five. Number six, the next thing that Paul says that was given to this nation, the nation of Israel, was the, uh, the promises. And when we think of the promises, just put, you can put down two seed thoughts here. The promises concerning the seed. And uh, when God spoke to Abraham, he gave him twofold. I mean, he gave him a number of promises, but twofold. His seed would first of all be as the sand. And when we speak of the sand, uh, keep this in mind, because Abraham is the father uh, of, the, of the chosen nation, the father of all who believe, was promised two seed lines. One seed was to be as the sand. And when we speak of the sand seed, we're talking about natural, national, fleshly, earthly Israel. Say those words again. So when talking about the sand, go and pick up a hands full of sand. And if you can number that, so numberless will your seed be. So when we talk about the sand seed of Abraham, we're talking about the, the natural, the national, the fleshly and the earthly seed of Abraham. But then later on, God said, now Abraham, I want you to come and I want you to look toward the stars and see if you can number them. So your seed will be. So Abraham was to have two seed lines, sand seed, star seed. And the star seed represented the heavenly and the spiritual seed of Abraham. So from Abraham, even in the Old Testament, there would be two seed lines, sand seed and star seed. All sand seed were not star seed, but all star seed had first of all been sand seed. How many feel you're a little star tonight? Because... If Abraham came back today looking for his seed, where would he go? He would come to Waverly Christian Fellowship and say, twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Because he would look at his spirit and say, then he would go over to the Middle East and say, why don't you sand seed except Christ is your saviour? Thank you, Kevin, for that excellent point. So, the promises, so particularly as they relate to the seed. Number seven, the seventh thing that pertained to Israel was the fathers. Right out of your Bible there. Who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And by the fathers, we mean... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The three fathers, and I say these words purposely, a trinity of men. No other three men in the total Bible has God ever called himself the God of, like that, a trinity of men. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So the fathers of Israel. And uh, with that you can put down Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. Exodus 3 and verse 6. Then the eighth thing, and this was the greatest that was given to the nation, and this is why God chose the nation as a nation from the nations to preserve the seed line. And number eight is the Messiah. To whom pertaineth the Messiah? The Christ after the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as pertaining to his human nature. You can put down Romans uh, 1 and verse 3. Romans 1 verse 3, that was the greatest promise that was given to the nation to whom pertaineth the Messiah. 
Now, number nine, one other one I want to give you, and this is from Romans. Put down number nine, and it's Romans chapter three and verse one and two. So, Romans three, verse one, two. This is the ninth greatest thing that God gave to this nation. So Romans chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2, he says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And listen to Paul's answer in Romans 3 verse 2. Much in every way. And here it is, chiefly, predominantly, the major thing, because to them were committed the oracles of God. And when we're talking about the oracles of God, we're talking about the sacred scriptures. They were the nation that was entrusted with the sacred scriptures, the oracles of God, literally the speaking place of the voice of God, God speaking to us through scriptures. So nine things that we've given to the nation, why don't you verbalize them with me? All right, number one, write off your notes. Number one, the adoption, all together. Number two, the Shekinah glory. Number three, the covenants. Number four, the giving of the law. Number five, the service of God. Number six, the promises. Number seven, the fathers. Number eight, the Messiah. And number nine, the oracles of God. Now, let's go to section C here. Now, in section C, we have reasons for God's choice of Israel. Now, it's really important, and I hope you can, uh, I know you've got it right at the same time, and this is where a third hand would be good just to hold your Bible. But I'd like you to look at some of these scriptures because I want to give you three major reasons why did God choose this nation? Why did God take a nation from the midst of nations uh, with mighty signs and wonders and plagues and everything like that and give them all these things? Why did he do it? All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And uh, as I said, if you can look at these scriptures with me or someone write for you. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I do wish people who are two extremes on this whole uh, Jewish problem would read the scriptures a little bit more carefully and not uh, go to extremes here. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And these scriptures are on your notes here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And listen to what God says in verse, um, verse 6 to 9. And God says, For you are holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now listen to verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on, on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. So God didn't choose the nation of Israel for numbers. For you were the least, or the fewest of all peoples. But, because the Lord loves you, so why did God choose them? Because he loved them. And because, 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 two becauses here, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the, house of, house of, uh, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose it? Because of love and because of the oath given to the fathers. Is that right? Not for numbers. So the little thought you could write there in your notes is, not for numbers... Reason for God's choice of Israel was not for numbers, but love and the covenant oath. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 9, a couple of chapters over, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 46. Now listen to the next thing that we have here, which is important. Why did God choose Israel? All right, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 46, right off your text there. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you. That's the Canaanites and so forth. 
after he's cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from you. It is not because of your righteousness. So God didn't choose them because of numbers. And your little thought to fill in there is, he did not choose them for their righteousness. Everybody said amen. Is that what your Bible says? Ask your question. Is that what your Bible says? All right, so it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go and possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God. You see, these things are hard for us to accept, but God rules over the nations. And he can dispossess peoples if he wants to. Because as I, when I teach on the Palestinian covenant, God is the Lord of the land. He's the landlord. And because he's the landlord, he can lay down laws for living in the land. And if they break the laws of the land, how many know that the landlord or the Lord of the land has the right to dispossess them? Get them out of the house. Thank you, Kevin, for your underwhelming response here, as the other senior minister says. All right, so continue here. So it's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go and possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness. Oh, I mean, you've told us that three times, God. Well, I want you to get the point. Well, you've already told me in verse 4, 5, and you say it in verse 6. Yeah, I want you to get the point. Not for your righteousness. And then what a lovely prophecy you end up with. You are a stiff-necked people. I rebuke that prophecy in the name of Jesus. My neck is all right. So, you feel in? God did not choose them for their righteousness, but for the wickedness of the nations before them and because of his covenant. Well, that's... Whew, if I got a prophecy like that, I think that would be very humiliating, don't you? Genesis chapter 12 and uh, verse 1 to 3. We'll just pick out one part, only because of our time's sake. The third reason why God chose Abraham and therefore in him the unborn nation of Israel is Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, the land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And here's the ultimate promise, promise of these seven, sevenfold promises. And in you shall all the families, or New Testament says, all the nations of the earth be blessed. Third thing I'd like you to put on your notes says, God chose them to bless all nations. All nations were to be blessed through the nation of Israel. Now, Let's go over to uh, Leviticus chapter 26, and we're going to go to section D now, section D. And this uh, is one of the most devastating chapters in the, in, the, in the law, in the Pentateuch. But Leviticus chapter 26, and uh, as I said, many times, either extreme, do not read these scriptures carefully and uh, just, you know, handle them rightly. Now, Leviticus chapter 26, under section D here, everybody doing all right? You're thinking fast along with me tonight? Okay, under section D we have desolation and divorce. Now bring together what we've done, Paul's burden for the nation, the national privileges given to natural Israel, the reason for God's choice, 
and why God took them as a nation from the nations in order to make them his missionary nation, if you please, and put them in uh, <laughs> Mount Sinai's Bible College. They had nothing against the Bible College, just the principle of it, and that was Moses. And then after he trained them, he wanted to make them his missionary nation and send them out to bless the nations of the earth. That's the picture. Now, Leviticus chapter 26 is one of the most devastating chapters in the whole of the Pentateuch. And in this chapter, and I, I don't have time to explain it, but you can put it down, this chapter is what we call the chapter of the seven times punishment. Now, I can't go beyond that, but draw it to your attention. The chapter of the seven times punishment. Now people say, don't use the word punishment today. I don't believe in punishing. Tell it to God. Listen to verse 18. And if you will not yet for all this hearken to me, or let me go over to uh, New King James. And after this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. The seven times punishment. Verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues, according to seven times punishment, seven times plagues. Verse 24. Uh, and if, uh, yeah, then I will war also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Seven times punishment. Go to verse 27, 28. And after this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Now, whatever you do with those things, it's too vast to go into. It take me a whole hour. But the seven times punishment, the seven times plagues, the seven times punishment, the seven times chastisement. It reaches over a period of time. We're way, way, way down in the end of the age where we are here. Now, in that chapter, after talking about this seven times punishment, he talks about four things that he would bring to desolation if they did not obey his word. So, under D, number one, fourfold desolation. This is, these things are found in verses 31 to 34, and I'm just going to give you the fill-in because we haven't got to that type of time. Letter A... The first thing the Lord said, and I'm putting it in this order, he said, I'm going to desolate your sanctuaries. In other words, a desolation of the temple, the holy places, the sanctuaries. So, I will desolate your sanctuaries. That's in verse 31. I will bring your sanctuaries into desolation. You have to think way ahead because what Jesus said, the temple will be desolate. Let it be... The next thing he said he would desolate would be their cities. Listen to verse 31 again. And I will make your cities waste and you will bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And um, yeah, it's verse 33 again, the last part. And your cities waste. So desolation of the cities. And we particularly think of the city of Jerusalem. Number, letter C. The third thing that would be desolated under the seven times punishment would be the desolation of the land. Listen to it again. Uh, then shall the land enjoy your Sabbaths, Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. And I'll bring the land into desolation. So I want you to think of that. Desolation, 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 desolation of the land, Palestine. And then letter D, the final thing, would be desolation of the people. 
So in verse 33, And I will scatter you among the heathen. I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate. In verses 31 to 34, note the use of the word desolation, desolation, desolation. Now, you have to think of God. He's taken as a nation, as I said, from the midst of the nations, given them the greatest privileges and everything like that, the greatest blessing, signs and wonders and miracles and power of God there and the glory of God. And he says, okay, here's the thing. If you don't obey my word, I'm going to have to punish you. You're my kids, I'm going to have to punish. Well, don't use the word punishment. It's a negative word today. Haven't you read, you know, seeker-sensitive services, please, Father? No, he talks about it's his own people. All right, now, let's go to number two here. The worst thing that happened to Israel, or Judah particularly, uh, yeah, Israel here, I want you to go over to Jeremiah chapter 3, and uh, I want you to see these verses in your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 3, and under fourfold desolation, everybody with me so far? Okay, listen to this terrible language, and this is not Kevin Connor talking, this is, this is God talking. So, in Jeremiah chapter 3, we have some of the most terrible language here, because what happened over the years with the chosen nation, they lapse into idolatry, and anyone who lapses into idolatry, that is spiritual adultery. Because they're married to the Lord, married to Jehovah, and this is so true today. If a person backslides, who's engaged to be married to Jesus Christ, and engaged to be married to Christ and be a member of the bride, when they lapse into the world and backslide and mess around with the world and flirt with the world, they are actually committing spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. Engaged to be married to Jesus Christ and flirting with the world. And how many Christians are in that state? Not here, of course. Am I talking to the right people? Thank you. All right, Jeremiah chapter uh, 3, verse 6. Is that right, Jeremiah chapter 3? Yes, verse 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? Backsliding Israel. She has gone up on every high mountain and under, under every green tree, and she's playing the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, return to me. God pleading for a backslider to come back to him, as he does today. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So we think of the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the two houses. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, listen to it, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. You mean God is a divorced person? Yes. I begged her to come back to me as my wife, but she committed adultery after all I did when I married her as a, as a nation back there. So finally I had to give her a bill of divorce. So when people say, well, the Jewish nation, still the chosen nation, just, just a minute, a divorced nation. Passed through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not returned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. 
Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah, and so forth. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 1, I'll just quote it, you needn't turn to it because time keeps moving. That's what Isaiah says in conjunction with Jeremiah. In Isaiah 50 and verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, who I've put away? Show me your bill of divorcement. Show me a certificate of divorcement. So here's the sad situation. Israel desolated the temple, the city, the land, the people, and divorced. Ezekiel 16, 23, I'll put there, he talks about the two wives, Israel and Judah, how they both played the harlot. Now, I want you to go over to John chapter 1 as we move on to section E here. John chapter 1 and section E, e and under this uh, caption I've got the rejected Christ. John chapter 1, and I think it's verse 11 and 12. Yes, verse 11, 12 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the power to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. As we're going to see later on in another session, God always comes to his own first. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as did receive, he gave. That's always church history principle. Now, in the, in the notes that I've put there, after three and a half years ministry, and if you, uh, oh, we'll do that later on. After three and a half years ministry, miraculous ministry, the, the Messiah, the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah there, after three and a half years, something happens in the nation except a, 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 uh, an election of grace, he calls it, an election of grace out of the race, Finally, when they arrest Jesus Christ and Pilate and Herod and all these men examine Jesus and they say, he's a just man, we find no fault on him. So what does the nation and the chief priests and the religious leaders, their cry was the loudest. They said, crucify him, crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. And they threatened Pilate and said, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And Pilate's scared to death of his position with Caesar if he's recalled to Rome, so forth. So what does he do? He takes a basin of water and he washes his hands and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. So here, Pilate, against Roman justice, what there was, he delivers an innocent man against Roman law and lets him crucify him. Now, as he's washing his hands, and it's very interesting in, uh, in church um, records, I have a uh, traditional letter of Pilate, Pilate's wife. And as he's washing his hands there, Pilate's wife come into the picture and said, have nothing to do with this man, just man. I've had a dream of him. And in the dream that I've got, according to the records, is that as uh, Pilate's wife was asleep that night, she had a vision of the great white throne judgment, and instead of Pilate judging the Lord Jesus Christ and washing his hands in blood, in, in water, pardon me, and saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man, she said to Pilate, this is the, according to the writings, the dream was reversed. Jesus was sitting on the throne and you were standing before him. 
And Jesus was saying to you, Pilate, give me back my blood that I've shed for you. And the thing was reversed. Have nothing to do with this man. And then history tells us that every time Pilate went to the bathroom to wash his hands in water, all his wife could ever see was blood coming out of the faucet there, washing his hands in blood. And history tells us that Pilate eventually committed suicide. Now, I said all that to say this. When, when they said, uh, I'm, when Pilate said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man, the representative of the nations that were there at the crucifixion, they said, his blood be on us and on our children. And this is tragic. This is tragic. And you can read in those scriptures, the Jewish nation knew from Numbers chapter 36, the laws concerning innocent blood. And when they said his blood be on us and on our children, they actually invoked the curse of innocent blood on themselves and their unborn generations. And only history has told the grief of that. And the sad part is that not only have political dictators done what they've done to the Jews and the Holocaust and everything like that. Sad thing is that the so-called church did it in the name of Christ. And I personally don't think that was the church. It was a great denomination. Is everybody still breathing here? So, the 70-week prophecy, the first half, three and a half years and they invoke the curse of innocent blood. Now, let me balance this out. The curse of innocent blood cannot be lifted until they accept the blood of Jesus. And the moment they say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior, cleanse me in your blood from every sin and uncleanness and everything like that, they come under the blessing of the blood. Is this right? Is this what the Bible says? It's not anti-Semitic, it's just this is what the Bible says. Now, I want you to go to letter F here, as time is moving on here. And I'm not going to have time to read the scriptures. I've put, purposely put them there. We have, uh, I want to, once you under letter F here, I want just to give you some fill in there for what I see is the present state of Jewry and Jerusalem. The present state of Jewry and Jerusalem. You'll just have to scribble in the answers without too much comment because I want to end up on uh, letter G and finish. Okay, so the present state of Jewry and Jerusalem. Number one, and the scriptures are there. I'm not taking time to turn them. Number one, the Jewish nation as Israel is a divorced people. They are divorced from God, separated from God. They have been given a bill of divorce. That's it. Number two, you fill in, they are not Abraham's spiritual seed. Not Abraham's spiritual seed. Now in the scripture I've given you there, John 8, they say, they're arguing to Jesus, say, hey, we are Abraham's seed. And Jesus said, I know you're Abraham's seed. But then they said, well, where's your father? And Jesus said, well, if you're Abraham's seed, you believe me. Now, what is Jesus saying? And, and Jesus had never read that book, How to Win Jews and Influence Pharisees in Six Easy Lessons, you know. So he says, okay, you say Abraham is your father. If Abraham was your father, you'd believe me. This Abraham did. And they said, well, where's your father? We're not born of fornication. Just a deliberate slam on the virgin birth. And Jesus said, well, look, if we're going to argue over fathers, you say Abraham's your father... 
Well, he is your father, but I'll tell you who your father is. You are of your father, the devil. I mean, fancy Jesus doing a nasty thing like that. But I'm on the side of Jesus, aren't you? Huh? So they were Abraham's seed after the flesh, sand seed. But they were not star seed. They were not Abraham's seed. Okay, number three. Wow, what a verse this is. Roman, uh, I'm going I'm to quote it. Number three, you can fill in. Romans chapter, uh, what did I say? Romans, uh, Romans 10. So number, th- uh, number three, ignorant of God's righteousness. I can't say it better than the scripture can. So Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. But they, listen, I'm in the heavy language. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, that you feel in, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone that believes. And it's just chain reaction. When people are ignorant of, God, of, of, of God's righteousness, what do they do? They go about to establish their own righteousness. And when they go about to establish their own righteousness, which is self-righteousness, righteousness of the law, they do not submit to the righteousness of God. How many are glad tonight that you've submitted to the righteousness of God? Because the righteousness of God is in Christ. That's it. Not my righteousness or self-righteousness, but the righteousness of God in Christ. How many in Christ tonight? So they, they are ignorant of God's righteousness. And number four, the next thing we find here, that they stumbled at a stumbling stone. In fact, I want you to put a, a letter A and B, or, or the two scriptures are there. First of all, they stumbled over the stumbling stone of faith righteousness. And I'm reading the scripture here. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Listen to it. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. As it is written, I lay in Zion for a stumbling stone, rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So, first aspect, they stumble at the stumbling stone of faith righteousness. They wanted a righteousness by works, self-justification before the Lord. And then the second stumbling stone they stumbled at was a crucified Christ crucified, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. That's why Paul says, God forbid that I should glory saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you can say amen. So, crucify Messiah. They didn't want to crucify Messiah. Number five, number five, Romans 10, 21, the fifth thing, they became a word-resisting people. Old King James puts they were again saying people, uh, it's really a word-resisting people. So, a word-resisting people. It's all from Romans, what Paul's burden for the nation. Number six, Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, that blindness is happening in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So you fill in there is, it's a blinded nation, blinded to the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Blinded to the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Number seven, Romans eleven twenty eight. Romans eleven twenty eight. Paul says they are enemies of the gospel. 
Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So God still loves the nation as he loves all nations. But at the moment, they are enemies of the gospel. Paul is saying that. So enemies of the gospel. Number eight, the eighth thing here is, they were broken out of the faith olive tree. Now, you have to listen to this point here. Many people say, oh, well, the olive tree represents the nation of Israel. No, the olive tree represents the faith olive tree. And in the little diagram, which I photocopied out of a book, you'll notice the olive tree here has three major roots, and that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the roots of the nation, because he said if the, if the roots be holy, the tree's holy. Well, by faith, Abraham. And by faith, Isaac. And by faith, Jacob. They were all men of faith. The true Israel of God, Old Testament and New Testament, is a faith olive tree. Otherwise, if it's just so well, the natural branches were broken off, he's using an illustration there. So if we say, oh, well, the olive tree represents the nation of Israel, every time a Gentile is converted to Christ, he's grafted into natural national Israel. No, it's a faith olive tree. How many can say amen? How many understand what I'm saying here? It's a faith olive tree. So they're broken out of the faith olive tree. Number nine, are we up to number nine? Yes, we're doing marvelous. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, and when he takes up an allegory there, he talks about earthly Jerusalem. So we're looking at the present state of Jewry and Jerusalem. So in Galatians 4, what does he say? He says, um, tell me you that desire to be under the law. Don't you hear the law? For it's written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. And then he says, which things are an allegory or symbolic? For these two sons are two covenants. Then he says... This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem, which is above, is free. And she's the mother of us all. Paul's very clear. The Jerusalem, which now is, is in bondage with her children. Look, I can feel the quietness here. Is, is this all right with everybody? Okay, and then you may as well look at this last one and then we'll move on to the positive end. Revelation chapter 11, the last reference to earthly Jerusalem in the Bible. So I've been to Jerusalem, you know, been there, done that. So when you go there for a misguided tour, just remember these things, won't you? Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, the last reference to earthly Jerusalem in the Bible it says about the two witnesses which I think is very significant. It says, um, what did I say, Revelation 11, verse 8? Yes. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, no mistaking it now, where also our Lord was crucified. So I want you to notice that. Three cities are brought together here. Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified. Sodom and Egypt. Now, let me say this real quickly for those who pick up seed. Sodom had two witnesses and was destroyed by fire and brimstone. Egypt had two witnesses and was destroyed by plagues. Jerusalem will have two witnesses and those who do not come to repentance 
will be like Sodom and Egypt. So when you go to Jerusalem, and I've been there, you go into a city which spiritually is Sodom and Egypt. Thank you, Kevin, for those wonderful points. Now, I want to finish up on this. Letter G, and you'll have to uh, uh, write in your own notes here. Okay, having said all this, is there any hope for the nation? Yes. And I believe this is what's going to happen. Restoration of Israel. Israel will be restored by, number one, for your filling, I haven't got it on the overhead. Number one, by the acceptance of the new covenant. Acceptance of the new covenant. Not under the Mosaic covenant. There is no hope under the Mosaic covenant. The law is administration of death. The only way for Israel to be saved is accept the new covenant. And I've put the scriptures there. The days are coming, says the Lord, that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of, out of the land of Egypt by the hand which covenant they break, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant, a new covenant. Number two, this very important thing, and I'd like you to turn to uh, Zechariah on this. I'd like you to look at this scripture. Just about through here. Hold that little clock up there. <clears throat> Zechariah, very important scripture here, and particularly pertaining, I believe, to the days that you and I are living in. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And go to verse 10. Or verse 9, I read. Where do we go here? Verse 9, shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to become what, what the uh, verse 1 and 2 and 3 says, a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone. Very heavy stone for anybody who touches it. Now, listen to verse uh, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And what's going to happen? Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There's going to come an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Jewish nation. It's going to be the spirit of grace and supplication and their eyes are going to be open and say, oh, our long-rejected Messiah. And the word mourn is used five times in those verses. And chapter 13, where there were no chapter divisions there, in that day, our fountain will be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. The fountain's already been opened, but they rejected it. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. I think that's worth a little hallelujah, don't you? Just a little one. Outpouring. So outpouring of the Spirit. And then just as we finish here, number three, the grafting in again by faith. The grafting in by faith. And I'll put the scriptures there for you to read. He says, and they also, referring to the Jewish nation, if they abide not still in unbelief. That's it. That's the Jewish problem. It's everybody's problem. It's in your, in your scripture there. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in again, for God is able to graft them in again. Once they get their eyes open, under an outpouring of the Spirit, God will graft them back into the faith olive tree. 
And then in uh, number four here, as we finish, we have, you fill in there, the salvation of, of the nation. When you look at the scriptures you have given you, they say, well, it says here, so all Israel will be saved. So, well, just a moment. Reconcile it in Romans 9, 10, 11. So all Israel will be saved. Paul has just said, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And if all Israel is to be saved, and they are not all Israel which are of Israel, who's the all Israel that's going to be saved? It's those who respond to the Lord Jesus Christ under that outpouring of the Spirit. Scriptures I've put there for you. My prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Whosoever shall con uh, confession of faith unto salvation, they shall be saved. With the heart man believes, confession with the mouth is made unto salvation. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and so all Israel will be, will be saved. Go through Romans 9, 10, 11, the use of the word saved. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. By grace are you saved through faith. Now, our last minute's up here. For your diagram, I hold this up though you can't see it. Down the bottom here, if you put in this fill-in here, in the first semicircle there, you can put three and a as I understand, okay? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And under the three, first three and a half years, they were the first nation to have the first coming of Christ and the first outpouring of the Spirit and basically rejected. There was a remnant, 3,000, 5,000, multitudes of men, men and women, a remnant. So God said, okay, through Paul, it was necessary that the gospel be first preached to you Jews. But seeing that you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And in the middle semicircle, we are in the age when God is visiting the Gentile nations and taking out of all nations a people for his name. Believing Jew and believing Gentile are in the church. In Christ, national barriers cease to exist. Hallelujah. It's a new man. And then down this end of the age, I believe there's going to be another three and a half years, and somewhere in this time, there's going to be another outpouring of the Spirit. But their eyes will be opened, and many of them, not all, will be grafted back into the faith olive tree. That completes Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Down the bottom of the page as we come to our conclusion, this is way down the middle now. The restoration of Israel is not to the Mosaic economy, which was abolished at the cross, but it's a restoration to God through Christ only by the body and blood of the new covenant. And everybody said amen. So if people say, well, what does Wayne Christian Fellowship believe? What about the Jewish nation? What about this? Tell them to buy a tape. And the beauty of the tape is, if they don't like me, they can turn me off. Everybody said hallelujah. You know what I'd like you to do as we close, our time's up here. Let's all stand. And I'd like us to pray for the Jewish nation. Because somewhere down the line, I believe we're living in those days, going to be an outpouring of the, of the Spirit and get their eyes open. How many can say amen? So let's lift our hands toward the Lord as we close here. 
Father, we just thank you that we're living in such tremendous times when you're visiting the nations and pouring out your spirit on all flesh in the last days. And out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation, you're uh, redeeming people to yourself. Holy Spirit's work and saving souls and convicting souls and bringing them. And we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of the church, that in the church, national barriers and distinctions cease to exist in Christ as neither Jew nor Gentile, Russian, American, Chinese, Australian, Asian, whatever. We're all one new man in Christ. And Father, we just lift up uh, your, your nation after the flesh, the Jewish nation. We feel, Lord, what you're doing through the world today, that you're going to pour out your spirit according to your word, and their eyes are going to be opened to their long-rejected Messiah, the firstborn, the only begotten Son. They're going to mourn. Hasten the day, Lord, when these things shall be. And Father, we just pray for all those who have a burden for the Jews, as Paul did, and those who have a missionary call there. Help them to be honest with Romans 9, 10, and 11, not to exalt the natural national birth above the spiritual birth, but tell them they must be born again to come into the kingdom. Help them to be honest, Lord. Pray for those who are border on anti-Semitism, Lord, and just make no hope. Father, just help us to keep a balance on all these things. You love all nations, and your desire is that all nations come to you. Let it be. This is our prayer. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everybody said, Amen. How many feel this has been a very balanced presentation? God bless you. Thank you. You are dismissed. Pick up your kids and have a great week. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.